So we're in Hebrews tonight, chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 18. In a study I'm calling, Can I Get a Witness? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, Lord, in our life. Lord, what an amazing thing is, Lord, that our sins have been forgiven, Lord. Fully and finally. Lord, as, as we're going to see tonight in this passage, Lord, they've been forgiven forever. So, Lord, they're not going to peek their head back up, Lord, and come back, Lord, to get us. You've paid for them all, past, present, and future. And, Lord, you see us as complete in you. Lord, but each one of us knows, Lord, that that work is not fully complete in us. Lord, while you see us in the sun, Lord, you're still working on us, Lord, as works in progress. And so tonight, Lord, as we dive into your word and see your grace and, and what you're doing in our life, Lord, that we'd be encouraged to press forward, Lord, and take that, that next step forward, Lord, to walk in obedience day by day, not thinking about tomorrow, for tomorrow we'll worry about its own things. But sufficient for today, Lord, is the things that you want to say, Lord, and do and, and, and give us victory over. And so may your spirit work heart to heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So is a picture really worth a thousand years or a, 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 a thousand words? Do actions really speak louder than words? Well, I think that's debatable. I mean, if we were to watch that video tonight without words or without someone talking, you know, it wouldn't have been very clear. But I think we all agree that a picture or actions associated with truth can be used to be a powerful witness. Just look at the life of Jesus. We have the Word of God to describe who He is. He, we have His words, but we're also told that He was the Word made flesh. And that He was the living example of the Father. And so truth and actions together form a powerful witness. And we see this fact tonight as well in our passage in verses 1 through 18. Tonight we're going to see that the writer is going to point out four powerful witnesses to back up the truth that he's been talking about um, so far in these last two chapters. And that truth is that Jesus is a greater sacrifice than those offered in the Old Testament. These four witnesses are going to teach us more about our great salvation, but they're also going to encourage us to press forward to be witnesses for Christ in our, in our dark and dying world. Our world's not going to get any better anytime soon. But you know what? As our world grows darker and darker, our lights will shine greater and greater in these last days, and the writer wants us to encourage us in that. So let's begin with our first witness. In verses 1 through 4, we see the witness of the Old Testament sacrifices and what they say. Now, remember the context. The readers here, they were thinking about returning back to Judaism to relieve their suffering. They thought, you know, if, if we can just go back to Judaism, you know, we can have our families, you know, we can have peace with our families, we can have peace with our neighbors and our relatives. But the writer got word of that and said, no, there is no return, but you're to press forward. And then he shows them the foolishness of even thinking about doing so. He says in verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. And so the word for here links 
these verses with chapter 9. And as I said, the focus of chapter 9 is to show Christ's great sacrifice in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifice. The writer says, hey, why even think about going back to the temple? Why think, uh, you know, why think going back to Judaism? Look at Christ and how much more he has done for you in contrast to what you had in Judaism. The law here refers to the law of Moses. And notice the Old Testament sacrifices were a part of the law. These two are inseparable. And that's kind of a sub-theme in this chapter. Yes, Christ is talking about doing away with the sacrifices, but also with the doing away of the sacrifices also comes doing away of the Old Covenant, the law. And so as Christ talks about replacing the sacrifices with his sacrifice, linked to that is also replacing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Because the sacrifices were commanded under the law. God never commanded sacrifice for sin before the law. But with the law, God commanded sacrifice. So they go together. Now the reason the law and sacrifices were done away was because they were only temporary. They were not God's final solution for sin and how he wanted man to relate to him. They were a temporary measure. As we learned from the video, they were a wall built around Israel to keep Israel Israel, to keep them separate. Sacrifices were given in God's grace in order to temporarily cover man's sin so man can remain, uh, remain in this relationship with God. It was only a temporary means. Now notice the writer points that out here. He says they were not the very image of the good things to come. So they weren't God's final solution. They were only, you know, they, they were not the very image. But the things that they did was they pointed people to Jesus. And the way they did that was through a shadow. Now the word shadow, I'm told, refers to a rough outline. And so these things weren't the perfect witness. They were just a rough outline. They were a vague reminder of the fact that they needed a final savior. They needed one who can pay for their sins once and for all. Verse 2, for then would they have, uh, not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. And so it's obvious that the Old Testament saints believed that their sin was only covered and not completely removed. It's obvious that these guys recognized that this wasn't God's final solution. Because if they did, they would not continually offered sacrifices year after year. So if God would have made this as his basis to take away sin, Old Testament sacrifice to an animal, then they wouldn't have had to do that every year, you know? But because they did this every year, it showed that they still had a consciousness of sin, that they were still knew the fact that it was only covered and that they had to continually do it uh, year after year. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so rather than removing sin completely and also removing the guilt that comes with sin, they were only set up as reminders from God the fact that their sin remained and they still needed a Savior. So think about that. Every year they came, bringing this offering on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16 says. This goat was offered for the nation. By faith, they would believe that it was offered on their behalf. But that would only cover them. That's what the word atonement means. It means kofar in Hebrew. It just means to cover and it was only pointing towards the final sacrifice. Now, here's a little side note as far as reading through the Old Testament and understanding Old Testament salvation, is that we must not assume that the Old Testament saints understood 
all that we do about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Sometimes, because of our knowledge of the New Testament, we tend to read into the Old Testament the New Testament. We think, oh yeah, as they were offering these sacrifices, they could believe and see Jesus on the cross for them, dying for their sins, the once and for all sacrifice. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, no, it's only a shadow. It's only a vague, rough outline. And we know that they couldn't understand what we do because if they really understood that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, they would have no more consciousness of sins. Their guilt would have been removed. Just as we look back at the cross, they would look forward to the cross and their guilt would have been finally and fully removed. But it wasn't. And so it, it was only a reminder of the fact that someone needed to come, but how he would come and how he would deal with sin it was left to God's revelation as he would continue to reveal it progressively throughout the scriptures. Now we come to our second witness in verses 5 to 10. We see God's witness concerning this one way of salvation. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. So the word therefore is another key word here. This word tells us that the writer is linking this to what was previously just said. As a result of what was just said, the fact that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin, God needed a final solution. And God's final solution is found in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Notice what he says. Under the law, God made it very clear that animal sacrifice was not his final solution. We see that in the words, the fact that God did not desire animal sacrifice. This means that it didn't appease him. Animal sacrifice couldn't please a holy God. Also, God did not find pleasure in them. Yes, God did command sacrifice, but it was an insult to think that that was God's final purpose and that he had pleasure in the fact that all these multitudes of animals were slain. No, God wanted to deal with sin finally and fully, but until then, he had to establish a temporary means. Sandwiched in between his lack of desire and his pleasure in animal sacrifice is the solution. And that solution is to send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, to this earth. We call it the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took a human body and became a man. So God became a man. And he did this because man needs to die for man's sin. You see, an animal can't die for man's sin. Only a man can die for a man's sin. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit there in the garden, God said, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die. And what happened? Well, they didn't fall over dead, but the sin of, uh, the, you know, the curse of sin came on them. Man died spiritually. They began dying physically. That's the curse of sin. And each one of us must pay for that curse. But God did something about that. He became a man, a perfect man, and he laid down his life for us. It's been rightly said, God paid a debt, you know, he did not owe. Because we had a debt that we could not pay. And so none of us could pay that debt because we're all sinners. In order for, for that debt to be paid, someone had to be perfect. And the only person who's perfect is God. So God became a man. Now notice verse 5. We're told here that when Christ came into the world, he quoted this psalm about the Father and himself. Now, nowhere in the Gospels are we told that this psalm is quoted. Christ maybe did say it, and it's just not recorded. John tells us that if everything that Christ did and said was recorded, man, the, the libraries in the world couldn't contain all the books. And so maybe he did quote it. 
and it's not recorded. Another way to look at this scripture is to see it through the fact that he is the living word and that he represents this with his life. If you read Psalm 40, that passage shows us a willful servant who has his ear open to his master to be a servant. And that's what this Greek translation of, of that Hebrew passage says. The fact that the way that he did that in obedience was by taking a human body and by coming as a man. And so Christ was a witness to this passage through his life. The fact that he was willing to set aside his place in heaven and come to this earth as a man. Philippians 2 describes it as something not to be grasped. And so when Christ was in heaven, he didn't think it was something that he needed to hold on to, being equal with the Father. But he chose to set aside his rights as God, take up the human body, and come and live as a servant. And not only did he live as a servant, but he laid down his life willingly for each of us. He was obedient to the Father. Verse 7, it talks about this obedience. Then I said, behold, I've come, and the volume of the book is written of me to do your will, O God. So in contrast to these animal sacrifices that God had no pleasure in or no desire in, we see God's heart concerning this sacrifice. First, we're told that Christ came in the volume of the book. It's written of him. The whole Old Testament pointed to the fact that the Messiah would come and take away sin. It started vaguely, right, as in the beginning as God began pointing towards a Savior. And then towards the prophets, it began getting very, very, very specific, very narrow as God began pointing to the Messiah as his revelation went progressively. Now, remember the message that Christ gave to his disciples there on the road to Emmaus. After Christ died and rose again from the dead, they were all bummed out. They were walking, and Christ met them, and he began talking to them. He says, what are you guys so bummed about? Well, didn't, don't you know what happened, that Jesus the Messiah was killed? And then he went on, and he told them, haven't you guys read what's written in the Law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets concerning me and how the Messiah must suffer? So he preached the whole entire Old Testament, the threefold division of the Old Testament that the Hebrews had, showing that it was necessary for the Messiah to come and suffer and die. And that's what it's saying here. The volume is referring to the knob on top of the scroll. So the entire Old Testament is all about Jesus. Now, when you approve of something, when you're fond of something, you speak often of it. And that's what the writer is saying here about Christ's sacrifice. In contrast to these Old Testament sacrifices, God had no desire in them. But think about Christ's sacrifice. God spoke throughout the entire Old Testament about it. Second, there's Christ's death on the cross to fulfill God's will. Jesus fulfilled God's will. God's will is his desire. That's God's heart for each individual person. And God's will was that he would send his son to have a once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. Jesus there in the garden prayed the Father, you know, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus was steadfast to the cross. He went to the cross because he knew that it was God's will, that there's no other way that man's sins can be dealt with but through the cross. Verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you do not desire, nor have pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. 
He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so Jesus' death takes away the first. Verse 8 says it's referring to the sacrificial system given in the law. Christ takes away the first, that sacrificial system, and he establishes the second, which was the will of God. And that will of God, we're told very clearly in verse 10, was the fact that God wanted to sanctify those completely through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. That's what God's will is. So through the cross, God took away the first and established something new, a new way of doing things. Not only did he take away the sacrifices, he also took away the law, which was man's binding relationship with God. That's the way man related to God. But God also took that out of the way too and established something new, the blessings of the new covenant that we relate to God. The writers don't talk about these blessings of the new covenant in, in the next following verses. But some, a little devotional thought to think about here. What a great witness. What God takes away, he always replaces with so much greater. Right? Isn't that true? What God takes away, he always replaces with so much greater. Now, I can never tell the story like Greg Glory, but he always tells a great story about how, you know, you know, there's this guy you know, in his house, and all of a sudden he hears this knock on the door, and there's Jesus standing at his door. And he's freaked out, you know, and so, he's, so he invites Jesus in the house. He says, hey, you want a glass of water? And he comes inside, and all of a sudden he hears a noise in the living room, and he looks in, and Jesus is tearing up his carpet and throwing out the, throwing his couches and his pictures, everything out of the house, and he's freaking out. What's going on? Jesus is tearing up my house. And all of a sudden he hears a yell, and the father, son, moving something, uh, father, son, spirit, moving something comes up, and, here, you know, here's these angels carrying these new things in, new carpet, new, new things, and he describes that's what God does in our life as we come to him. He takes away the old things, those things that, you know, won't do, those things that, that can't truly satisfy and make us complete, and he fills us with that which can fully fulfill and complete through Jesus Christ. This can only happen to those who are sanctified by this once-for-all sacrifice. Yes, Jesus paid it all, but only those who put their faith in Christ will be set apart from God. Christ made the provision, but only those who put their faith in him can actually receive that provision. Now, we're going to see the word sanctified and perfected used a couple times in this passage. And this verse here, sanctified means to be set apart in a positional sense. Positionally means how God looks at you, your position, you know, in, in this, you know, in this relationship with God. Because you put your faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, because you believe the gospel, God looks at you positionally as being set apart from the world. He sees you now in Christ. There's also another word used in the scriptures, it's called justification. That's a declaration from God, the righteous judge, which says, he has declared you righteous based upon the finished work of Jesus. And so these sacrifices, they left guilt. They left a reminder of sin. God had no pleasure in them. But then there's that once for all sacrifice of Jesus done one time. And when he put our simple faith in that, the Bible says God looks at us as sanctified, set apart. He looks at us as righteous, just as if we have never sinned, justified, right? He looks at us 
as holy in his sight, completely forgiven. What a better sacrifice we have in Jesus. Now, third, in verses 11 through 14, we have Christ's witness in heaven that the work of redemption is finished. Verse 11, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now, when you read this description of the tabernacle and the temple, the holy place, the most holy place, you never see a couch or a chair referred to in those, in those um, furniture pieces. The reason is because the work of the priests was never done. The priests always stood ministering daily, offering repeatedly the sacrifices, which could never fully take away sins. They only covered the person's sins. And so as a person sinned, they would have to come back and do another sacrifice. Right? Year after year, they have to offer another sacrifice. So the work of the priest was never done. You can never just say, okay, I offered this one last ram. Okay, that's it. You guys believe in that ram, that it was on your behalf, and you're, and you're saved. You're, you're totally cleansed. But he couldn't do that. But Jesus, through his once-for-all sacrifice, notice this, sat down at the right hand of God. So here's Jesus' witness in heaven. The fact that he sat down witnesses to those on earth the fact that his work is finished. He's not standing right now meaning to, to go and make more sacrifice, but he sat down and showing us that the work, of, the, the work of redemption is completed. It's taken away. It's, it's done forever. Now, there's no longer this need for this repeated sacrifice. Verse 12 shows us that. It's forever. Now, Christ is seated awaiting the timing of the Father, which we're told is the time when he'll send Christ back to make his enemies his footstool. We call this the second coming. And we're given more insight throughout the New Testament. We're told that the church is going to be with Christ when he does this. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints. And so Christ is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God. There's going to be a time in which the Bible says Christ is in a rapturous church. He's not going to come back on earth. He's going to meet us in the clouds. We're going to be caught up. The dead in Christ are going to be resurrected, and the living saints are going to be raptured, caught up, harpazo, caught up with Christ in the clouds. And then we're going to go to heaven to be with Christ. And then after the seven-year tribulation, the Bible says that we're going to come back with Christ. And that time we come back with Christ, Revelation 19 says, will be during this battle of Armageddon. And the armies of the earth are going to have this idea where this is, hey, look, there's Christ coming back in glory. Let's turn on him, try to destroy him. And the Bible says that he strikes him down with one word of his mouth. His enemies will become his footstool. There's really no battle there. But the enemy's footstool mean that just as a conquering king would put his foot on the neck of, his, uh, of the one he conquered, even so Christ is going to come back and conquer the evil men of this earth. Say you watch the news, you know, you, you see things come out and you think, man, wickedness is like the conquering enemy all around us in this world. You know, sometimes it feels like we are the footstool, but we're not. Christ is on the throne. He, knew, he knows exactly what's going on. Just as sometimes the Lord would allow his disciples to be in the midst of that storm-tossed sea, which the enemy will cause in order to scare them, the Lord knows what's going on. He has it all. He's guiding his church. He's in control. 
but yet the Lord is waiting for his timing when the Father will say, come back, and the Lord will restore all things and establish his kingdom on, the earth, on this earth. Now, we have a witness here, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so Christ's witness in heaven speaks loudly to those who hear him from earth. Those who put their faith in Christ are perfected forever, positionally, but notice God still wants to work in us practically. It says here that we are also being sanctified. And so sanctified has a threefold way of working. We are positionally sanctified, meaning that in Christ we're set apart in God's sight. We're justified. We're declared righteous in his sight. But the work isn't done in the sense of in us. The Lord is continuing to change us. He's continuing to make us more like Christ, to continue to set us apart. God does this through his word and through his spirit. And finally, there will be a day that will be totally set apart when we awake in the likeness of Christ in heaven. Now, we, in the fir, uh, fourth, in verses 15 through 18, we see the Holy Spirit's witness now through the blessings of the new covenant. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I'll write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. For where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So now the Holy Spirit's going to witness to us here. And the way that he does that is through the word and through his work in our lives. Through faith in Christ, we can experience these blessings of the new covenant. The new covenant's spoken of in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Those blessings include inward righteousness. He'll put his laws in our minds, in our hearts. That's referring to being born again. The fact that God, through his inward indwelling spirit, has given us the power now to keep the law. You see, the law and sacrifices were only outward. But now, through the indwelling spirit, we have the power to keep the law and fulfill this law of love. Second, our sins and our lawless deeds have been forgiven. They're gone. And so God chooses not to remember our sins anymore. Now, God still knows all things, so people say, well, how does God forget our sins? Well, he doesn't forget your sins. He chooses not to hold your sins against you anymore. So God will no longer hold your sins against you, so therefore you don't have to experience the guilt of your sins and the fact that Christ paid it all. And so you and I, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, can know for a fact that our sins have been forgiven, and we can rejoice and rest in that. Now think about the logic behind, behind this argument. Since the readers, you know, since our sins were gone, there was no reason to return back to Judaism. They were to respond in obedience to the witness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for you and I. Why turn back? Why not, ret you know, why not respond to this witness of the Father? He, we see what his will is. His will was to send Christ for us, and we please God by being in Christ. We see Christ's will and obedience to the Father. We see his witness and we're to follow his example. And we see the Spirit's witness of the new covenant. So we're to respond to this threefold witness of God in our salvation by following Christ's example to lay down our life and to follow him. As we do this, we'll be just like Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. His light did shine in darkness. As we follow Christ's example and walk in obedience, we also will shine like lights in the midst of darkness. 
Christ told us this, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven.